Good morning, guys. You guys doing good? Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 is where we're at. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hands. We have ushers that would love to get you Bibles. Um, let me give you a quick little background. Uh, let me first pray, and then uh, I'll give you a quick little background, and then we'll jump in. And uh, what we've been talking about over the past several uh, weeks, as well as months in the book of Ephesians. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in. So, God, we ask for your help right now that you would give us uh, understanding, that you would allow our minds just to be open vessels for you to fill, for you to inform, for you to give us your understanding. God, is your word that leads to life, and we need it. God, so much around us uh, is darkness and breeds death. And so, God, we pause now in this time, in the moment that we have together here, to just allow you to give life, bring transformation. And so we surrender and we submit our hearts, our minds, our souls, our thoughts, everything to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've been looking at over the past several months in the book of Ephesians is been going through how God works through the gospel and God transforms and changes uh, people's lives, and one of the evidences of God changing people's lives is the gospel has what Paul would describe as, will describe kind of as a horizontal impact where it begins to reach out, and one of the evidences that Paul points out that the gospel is so powerful and so good, and uh, there are moments where Paul just kind of pauses and moves into sort of uh, like short acclamations of praise, uh, where he'll say that really what he's uh, celebrating is God is brought together both Jew and Gentile, who were once formerly enemies, together into one family, one body. And Paul recognizes this as being a real evidence of God's mighty work at hand because these once two different parties used to be in alienation with one another, hated each other, despised one another, and yet through Jesus was breaking down these middle walls of partition and separation and making one family, not bunch of different families, but one family through God's grace. So Paul celebrates this and recognizes that the gospel has this impact on a horizontal level to, to really bring healing into deep, broken areas. And we see that on very practical ways, very pragmatic ways, where let's say, for example, two people that were at odds or at enmity with each other, someone humbles himself and asks forgiveness or recognizes their sin or their actions that were done that were maybe destructive, and the other person responds by saying, I forgive you. That action of uh, confession, uh, recognition of one's sin, and forgiveness actually has this effect that brings things together, brings people together. It's called reconciliation. It's called forgiveness, and it's something that we typically do not see happen within this world. In fact, it's so common to see parties separate and divide and pull apart, hate each other, and sometimes even lob accusations at one another, and sometimes it gets even worse to the point of death and death threats and so on and so forth, that it's common for us to just see that type of division and brokenness and hatred uh, resident within this world, that when forgiveness and reconciliation happens, we're shocked by it. Well, in reality, that is the theme or the storyline of the gospel, that what on a cosmic level, we were at enmity with God. And not just enmity with God, but also enmity with our neighbor. 
Um, and yet God was at work through Jesus reconciling us to himself so that God, rather than alienating us from himself, God invited us, God welcomed us, God drew near to us, and we are saved. But again, through that came the gospel moving outward in terms of other relationships. And this is most preeminently seen through a guy like Paul the Apostle. So again, we've mentioned this in the past, but Paul was a uh, Pharisee. Paul was a guy that was trained and raised kind of in a very elitist type of uh, Judaism. In fact, some would even kind of liken to more of, uh, in modern day circles, kind of like a, a very strong fundamentalist type of Judaism, and to the point where Paul would not really find himself uh, interacting or having a relationship with anybody that was not part of his own very strict form of Judaism. And yet, the irony in the story of Paul is once Paul met Jesus, or post Paul's relationship with Jesus, Paul was actually considered the apostle to the Gentile. And that's kind of an ironic statement, a shockingly ironic statement, because Paul, prior to Jesus, would have never really had anything to do with Gentiles, other than to view them as nothing more than kindling for God's barbecue. But post-Jesus, Paul was able to see that these Gentiles are actually precious, not only to God, but precious to him. Paul would have considered them friends and family. This is what the gospel does. This is what we mean that the gospel has a healing impact upon this world and upon our lives. Now, that being said, what Paul then begins to point out in chapter 6 is that there is a very dark undercurrent in this world that's still resident in this world that is trying to influence, taint, corrupt, destroy, ruin, sabotage, get the idea, everything that God wants to do good within this world to undo it, to corrupt it, to break it down. In other words, in areas where God has brought reconciliation and has uh, led you to be able to forgive and love instead of hate and welcome instead of alienate, that there are influences in our lives that oftentimes try to taint us back into the old typical ways of life that were all about death, destruction, division, and brokenness. And what Paul actually does is he says that these, these dark forces actually are not just simply impersonal forces, they're actually personified in what Paul would describe as the devil. That the devil is uh, a a dark, evil being um, that is seeking to undo everything good that God wants to do within your life. And one of the things that we looked at is that Paul points out he doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. And one of the reasons why we've kind of been spending a lot of time in this subject matter, I think so far is about, I don't know, week five or so, something like that, that that we've been looking at this, is because there is a tendency for us to kind of quickly go through these things and move on and never really take them to heart and never really truly allow them to kind of penetrate deep into our lives to begin to shape how we think about these things in life. And so in other words, you might hear a sermon or one or two about it once every couple years, and then we just kind of go on with the rest of our lives, and we wonder why there are so many dark influences that constantly feed brokenness in our life instead of bring forth redemption and wholeness and healing. And what I think Paul wants for us to understand is there are these deep demonic forces at work. And most of the times, we are actually ignorant of them. So what I want to do is I want to read a couple passages that we've been reading actually the past couple of weeks. And again, all this kind of stems from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. And, uh, but it basically springboards from there to go on into a number of different avenues and arenas of methods that Paul is going to describe 
uh, and other writers are going to describe that the devil seeks to undo God's good work within our lives. So, in other words, the way that we've been doing this over the past couple of weeks is we've basically been looking at this big, long list, which, which is what pretty much it amounts to. And it kind of looks like, and may even feel like, a long list of disjointed, incongruent types of topics. But the reality is, and I'll read you the list that we've been kind of going from over the past several weeks in just a second, but the reality is that each one of these things, the, the common, denominator, common denominator that they all share is that they're all linked by way of being identified as being various forms of darkness, evil, demonic activity, or influenced by Satan himself. So in other words, each one of the things that we've been looking at, to some degree, are linked to uh, and attributed to some form of demonic, wicked, satanic type of activity. That's why we've been trying to go through them and, uh, and understand them. So I'm going to read the passages, and then I'll describe, kind of make a distinction what I've been describing as far as two different types of, or two different larger categories, if you want to think of it that way, of demonic activity. So first of all, let's jump into Scripture and see what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We'll read 2 Corinthians 2, 11, James 4, 7, and then 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. In Ephesians 6, 11, Paul says this. This is a verse that we should all be super familiar with so far. But again, I'll read it. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word scheme that we've been reading over and over again past several weeks is the word that we get the English word method from. Satan has methods whereby he uses or employs to attack and destroy and undo God's good work within your lives. Are you aware of those things? Do you know what those methods are? Uh, Because... The other writers are going to describe those similar types of methods and then say things like to avoid them. So I'll give you a couple of other examples. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says this. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not, or for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul, again, says of Satan's methods or Satan's designs, we don't want to be ignorant of these things. In other words, we want to be aware of these things, not to the point where we meditate upon them and think about them or are always obsessed by them, but that we are aware of them so that when they arise, we will be able to identify them as such and then move away from them as such and move toward God's grace, God's healing, God's cleansing. So the other verse we'll take a look at is James chapter 4, verse 7, where in James, he writes, Submit yourselves therefore to God, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So James gives us a little bit of uh, instruction. He says, resist the devil, turn away from him, and he'll flee from you. It seems common that typically what happens is the exact opposite. There's a tendency for us to uh, resist God, whereby we don't go to him, we don't allow him to inform and influence our understanding, our thinking, and yet we allow our minds to be influenced by God. (laughs) Non-gods, <laughs> demons, idols, and other things that are popular and preeminent within our culture. And so as a result of that, rather than fleeing from the devil, we find ourselves oftentimes oppressed by activity that leads to constant, ongoing brokenness. The last scripture we'll take a look at, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-9. through 9. Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom... Uh, seeking someone to devour. We said this last week, and in a sense, Satan, like a lion, is like the, uh, is always looking for opportunity to crush and destroy. 
Um, and what he's saying is that now I want you to resist him. Be aware of the various ways in which he's lurking, uh, in which he's trying to find uh, weaknesses, weak spots within your life, and be aware of what those weaknesses are. Be aware of some of those areas in which he attacks so that you can then resist him. So what I wanted to make a distinction about over the past couple of weeks and continue to make a distinction is the difference between what I'll describe as common demonic activity and then blatant demonic activity. And the way I define it is like this. Common demonic are frequently occurring actions that are proven to cause brokenness, yet we grow accustomed to them, and we oftentimes adjust our lives around them. So in other words, they're so common, we just typically think that these are attributes or actions that are just part of the way life is. One of the chief premier examples that we gave as we jumped into this why don't you turn to the next slide, if you would, uh, real fast, that kind of gives the, uh, the whole list of things. So I'll give you a couple examples. One of them, it starts, the list starts with the word lies, or lies that we've kind of looked at. So let's find that slide. It says lies at the top. Um, and if you think of it this way, lies are something that's so common within our culture that we typically don't think of it as being demonic. But Jesus himself says that Satan is the father of lies, And that's his native language. So in other words, when Satan talks, when he speaks, he speaks non-truths. And so when we as human beings lie, uh, we are basically doing so out of influence or under the influence of demonic activity in that sense. And we typically don't think of it as such because lying is so part of the common fabric of culture and society that we just don't tend to think of it as such as being dark or being devilish or being destructive. So the way we oftentimes approach something like lies is everybody lies. That's how you get ahead. That's how you get a girlfriend. That's how you get a boyfriend. That's how you keep your marriage. You lie. You don't tell the truth. You don't tell your spouse what you really were doing because if they really find out what you're really doing, then they might want to divorce you. Uh, You tell lies so that you can advance yourself in your career. And we basically tell ourselves that the way that we take care of our lives is we engage in the systematic practice of lying, which the important thing to consider and think about is that the kingdom that Jesus has come to build and to establish is a kingdom that has come to replace the kingdom within this world. And for example, if the kingdoms within this world, the kingdom in this world operates according to lies, then it would stand to reason that what Jesus is attempting to do is to undo these things that are preeminent within our culture. And if lying is part of that, then that means that in Jesus' new kingdom, lying really doesn't have a place. So let me give you an example of how this plays out. One of these days, Jesus will rule and reign in entirety upon planet Earth. He will come back, and he will rule and reign, and those that follow Jesus will share in that life to come. It's an amazing hope that we have. And in that life to come, It will not be a rule and reign, a life, a lifestyle that is defined by lying. Instead, in its place will be truth-telling. Jesus is the truth. Those who love the truth will speak the truth. Not in kind of a weird sense, the way you've seen kind of in movies, maybe where, you know, again, there's that movie, I can remember, Liar, Liar, you know, where it's like, the whole shocking thing is you tell the truth. It's like, shocking, people just don't tell the truth, and and it kind of comes into the storyline of the movie as just kind of being silly, like see what happens when people tell the truth. A bunch of crazy things happen. But we can't even begin to imagine what life would be like where people actually, rather than lying to each other, spoke truth to one another. 
because that's how common it is within our world. But again, the point that I want to make is this, rather than belaboring the point of talking about lies, is that it is part of the demonic, broken system governed by, influenced by Satan, in which Jesus has come to replace and to append and to, to restore a new kingdom that brings healing and hope, beginning with truth. Jesus speaks truth. Jesus leads us into the way of truth. That truth ultimately heals us. A couple other things to think about in terms of common demonic is like unrighteousness. We pointed out how uh, acting in accordance with unrighteousness actually leads to continual brokenness within this world. Or disintegration. We point out the word disintegration is the opposite of the word peace, where Paul begins to point out, he says, uh, to the believers that are trying to um, recognize uh, by being aware of the various methods of the devil, where he says, walk in the way of peace, or the gospel of peace. So we pointed out how the gospel is so good. The good news is actually that God has come not to crush and destroy and ruin, but actually to be crushed for us, so that instead of our being crushed, that Jesus would give us wholeness. Jesus would make us whole. And so the opposite of the peace that the gospel brings is really the sense of disintegration or disorientation, where rather than things coming together and being integrated, things are being disintegrated, and that's part of what the devil seeks to do, to disintegrate, to ruin this culture and society and this world in which we live in. God is trying to bring it together. God's wanting to heal. Uh, we see disbelief as opposed to trust, confidence in God, or what Paul describes as pick up the shield of faith or destruction. And this is the opposite of salvation, that Jesus wants to bring salvation. The opposite of salvation is destruction. So these are various ways in which the devil seeks to attack and destroy. So what we looked at last week are carrying on, again, what may seem like a very disjointed list, but each one of these things, to some degree, is directly connected to a various form by which the devil seeks to attack and destroy. So we looked at uh, pride is opposed to humility. Pride actually leads to human languishing. Sexual sin, uh, uh, it's described as sexual temptation, that, again, when people just simply give themselves entirely, totally over to their sexual proclivities, that does not lead to wholeness or healing or life. It actually leads to languishing and brokenness and defilement, and, which means that, again, our culture is constantly feeding lie upon lie upon lie that you can somehow have it both ways. You can both live and have as much sex as you want without any limitations or restrictions. And yet, what the Bible describes, actually, is that sex is a very good gift from God in the right context, taken out of the right context, and used, misused and abused, actually leads to human languishing. All of this is influenced by the devil. Is all this making sense so far? This is one big, long, whopping introduction. You're welcome. So we looked at also two last week and ended with the concept of bitterness. That bitterness is also a part of this sense of Satan trying to destroy and ruin and break apart that which God wants to bring together. I had a handful of people ask, how do I know if I'm struggling with the sense of bitterness? Because bitterness, uh, as opposed to leading to forgiveness and reconciliation and wholeness, bitterness, um, one of the ways I would help others to kind of think about whether or not you are bitter or not, is uh, really bitter people are those, uh, they have this uncanny ability to keep accurate record of everybody else's wrongs. They have this uncanny ability to keep accurate account or record of everybody else's wrongs. 
So in other words, if you were to ask them, like, tell me a little bit about the problems that you have with this person, they'll, like, whip out this long ledger and be like, well, let's see, it started back in, like, 1989. And, you know, and then they're able to kind of unpack all of these record of accounts uh, in which they have been offended. And what ends up happening as a result of this, it leads to a constant ongoing brokenness of life as opposed to things coming together, things being made whole, things being healed. And bitterness causes one to basically hold on to that offense in the sense to wrap themselves, to clothe themselves in that offense whereby they feel kind of justified and safe. But again, rather than leading to flourishing in life, they actually find themselves breaking down inside and being crushed as a result of that. The very thing that Jesus came to do to set people free, to bring healing into their life, to cleanse them from their brokenness and from their sin, the rebellion, the devil loves to get us trapped into these little things like offenses, like bitterness, and then bring about destruction in our lives again. So what I want to do today is look at three more things, and then we'll finish with this little section here, and then we'll move on next week to what I would describe as blatant demonic type of activity, and I'll unpack that more next week. But So the one thing I want to take a look at as we jump in, the first of three, is jealousy, selfish, jealousy and selfish ambition. Now again, what unites or links or is a common denominator amongst all of these things, is that each one of them are linked together by various words that describe them as being demonic or satanic or evil and so on and so forth. So this is where jealousy and selfish ambition actually play into this. So James writes, and he tells us this, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and do not be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Those three words are actually kind of an interesting uh, a triplet is the idea of earthly, sensual, demonic is what we described a couple of weeks ago when we said that one of the ways, uh, the main ways in which uh, we find ourselves under regular, repeated attack or destruction within this world is by through main, uh, through three main uh, arenas: the world, the flesh, and the devil. So earthly, obviously associated with the world, uh, sensual is the idea of the flesh or what we sense within this body and then ultimately demonic. And these are three different avenues by which oftentimes the devil uh, tries to trick us and trap us and destroy us uh, and to conspire against, rather than bringing life into our lives, we find ourselves languishing and broken. The very thing that God wants to bring about, healing. So he says, this wisdom that comes down from above, uh, but this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Verse 16, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Did you hear that? So again, he emphasizes the fact that not only is this demonic, but the fruit of it, the result of jealousy and selfish ambition actually leads to disorder and every vile practice. So again, in other words, you can look at it this way. It's everything that we see that's commonplace in this world. So I call this common demonic. Is that it's so common that we would just simply look at it and think that this is a typical narrative of the world in which we live in. Everybody gets jealous. Everybody has selfish ambition, right? So why buck the system? The reason why we buck the system is because it leads to brokenness and every vile practice. The reason why we buck the system is because Jesus has come to append that system to provide a new kingdom that brings life and wholeness as opposed to every vile practice to bring order instead of disorder 
So this is what you need to understand, that if this is what defines or describes your life, please understand that the hope and the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus has come to offer healing at great expense to himself, but free to you, to trust him, and he will reorder your life. This is what the gospel offers. Verse 17, he offers the opposite, where he says, but the wisdom that comes down from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. So you begin to see this idea of what jealousy and selfish ambition lead to as opposed to the life that God wants. So let's take it one step further and try to understand what jealousy and selfish ambition is. Um, first of all, to show you the next slide, kind of came across in my research, some cool art and it's kind of a cool painting and uh, done by a guy named Hayes King. He was a French uh, artist and uh, it's actually called Jealousy and Flirtation. If you're kind of wondering where I got it from, is Wikipedia. So there you go. Um, and it's kind of an interesting picture as I kind of stared at. Obviously, this dude's flirting with this young girl and there's a young other young girl sitting in the corner have no idea who she is, but you can imagine what's going on in her mind. She's frustrated, and she wishes she was the one sitting down being flirted, flirted on with that dude. Instead, she's obviously full of envy, and I think the artist kind of captured that a little bit in her mind. But typically what happens when envy, this type of jealousy begins to permeate within your life, it can lead to all forms of vileness and brokenness, the way we're described. Um, you guys obviously familiar with what happened this past within the past week and a half. There was a uh, murder slash suicide where that one young, uh, I think he was a freshman kid, I think it was in Colorado, goes in with a gun and he shoots five kids, four of which died. The backstory to a lot of that was actually what happened was um, it was it was a cousin. He had a vendetta against his cousin because his cousin uh, basically stole his girlfriend and he was upset. He was angry as a result of it. He was full of bitter. Jealousy, and that bitter jealousy, as opposed to finding an outlet that led to healing and wholeness, whether by having a dad to talk to or someone to sit down with him and help coach him through the pain of loss and the tragedy of having something taken from you and what to do when your life gets turned upside down. Instead, he took matters into his own hand and sought to murder and ultimately kill himself. And what happens is grieving people now have to are left to wrestle with the painful emotions of what happens when murder, suicide takes place. It's painful. It's not healing. It's not good. It's not the gospel that Jesus has come to bring. In fact, it's everything that the devil wants to do to tarnish and soil and stain and corrupt every good thing that God intends to do. And this is what happens with jealousy and selfish ambition. But the word jealousy is kind of an interesting word, so we've got to take a look at it. The actual Greek word is, uh, we get the English word zealous from. So the word jealousy, even though in the English language, we typically think of jealousy in terms of negative connotation. So in other words, if you were to say of somebody, well, they're jealous, that's never a positive. So if someone says to you, you're jealous, that's always an insult, or it's always an, obvious, uh, an observation of a trait in you that's not good. So FYI, if you're trying to wonder, like, I'm always called jealous. Like, that's not a good thing. Your friends are sending you signals to you that you should probably listen, pay attention to. So, um, but the word jealous in the Bible actually is, uh, there are occasions where it's actually used to describe God. It's an actual description of a characteristic trait of God or an emotion, if you would, that God has. So the word jealous in and of itself, we, uh, again, like I said, derive the English word zealous from. So what God's jealous for is God's jealous for his great name. God's jealous for his people. Again, if you want to substitute that word jealous for zealous, that God has this, this raw, passionate emotion for his people. God has this raw, passionate emotion for the greatness of his name to be observed and seen and promoted. 
But the word that we have to observe here that James tells us is that if you have bitter jealousy, and this is what we have to unpack, the word bitter basically comes from a word that implies something that has to do with cutting or biting or nitpicking. So think of what comes to my mind is I think of, um, what do you call this fish in the Amazon? Why can't I think of this right now? Piranha. Think of piranhas just biting. Now, piranhas, unlike sharks, shark can like take you out in one big fell swoop. But piranhas, you need a whole lot of them. And the way they destroy its victim is they take little bites out of you until the point where you're dead. Now, I don't know this for sure because I've never seen it happen, but I've seen YouTube videos. But the point of the matter is, is that that's what I think about is biting, is bitter jealousy is a type of zeal, type of raw emotion that is always wanting to eat another piece of its prey, biting, devouring, chewing, until you think you have enough to survive and live, but in reality, you are yourself being eaten, devoured, and chewed by it. And it leads to every vile practice. So if you think of it this way, why do people murder? They murder because they want something that they don't have. And there's all sorts of other reasons why people murder, but they have something. Uh, Somebody else has something that they really desperately want, or they took something, like in the case of this uh, freshman, and now he's angry, he's bitter, he's jealous, full of bitter jealousy, and so therefore he knows he's not going to get his girlfriend back, or if he does end up getting his girlfriend back, his name now has been drugged through the mud. So in other words, it wasn't just a girlfriend that was taken away, it was his reputation that was taken away, and he will never get that back, so therefore he will take the life of somebody or others who contributed to that. That's what bitter jealousy does. It leads to every vile practice. And here's the thing I want you to understand, is it actually is set on fire by and influenced by demonic forces. I think it's funny because we live in a world that is filled with all forms of media and information telling us that we need things that we currently don't have. In a lot of ways, I think that's what social media is. I've been on this like little social media break for the past couple weeks, and every once in a while, I kind of go back on and check it out for just a few minutes. But I actually deleted Facebook from my, from my iPhone. It's been freeing and awesome, and then I find myself not checking it like every, I don't know, 20 minutes, whatever the case is, and it's awesome. I love it. Um, and sometimes I sit on my computer, I'll just like, I limit myself, I'll maybe check it for like two minutes, and then I just go in with the rest of my stuff that I need to get done. It's, it's really liberating. But one thing I'm discovering is I find myself coveting a whole lot less. I find myself less jealous than I've ever been because I'm not feeding my mind with all of these other things that everybody else has that I should have. In a lot of ways, that's what social media does. I mean, how many times have you been on social media or found out stories about other people and you begin to find out that even though you're not married, they just got married, or even though you don't have a kid, they just got pregnant, even though you didn't get the job uh, that you were hoping to get, somebody else got promoted and got a better job, making more money, more stuff, more goods than you ever had, and so therefore, here you are without, and it's easy to begin to kind of feel this emotion well up with inside you that feels disintegrating, it feels like it just is, is raw, it's breaking you down, that is jealousy, bitter jealousy leads to every vile practice, it is influenced by the devil who's constantly whispering, you don't have what you need to survive. But the counter-narrative of the gospel says, no, no, no. 
What Jesus offers is every single thing you need to survive. He takes care of you. Jesus says, when you pray, pray to God, who is your father. He's a good father. He loves you. He knows everything that you have need of. If you need food, he will take care of you. If you need clothing, he will clothe you. He's a good father. But the problem is, we oftentimes give place to this common demonic narrative in the world that says, you don't have enough, you need more, everybody else has it, but you don't. And there wells up with inside of us this deep, bitter jealousy that begins to tear us apart and destroy us. Some of you guys remember that movie a long time ago. It was called Amadeus. Um, I don't even know when it came out, maybe like 80s. But I remember I've watched it a couple times, and um, it's obviously about, you know, Amadeus Mozart, who's like this prodigy, super genius, smart, you know, musician, but he's an absolute idiot. Everybody hates him. He's like a little, he's like the classic adolescent, like, frat boy in America today. Like, he's is, is given everything, but he's really smart, and he just annoys a lot of people. Not that every frat boy does that, but the point of the matter is he has everything given to him, and he's, he's intelligent. Everybody wants him, and there's this um, other uh, player in the movie. His name's Soleri, and he's this guy that's older, uh, he's not as popular, he's not as good-looking, he doesn't have as many women uh, attracted to him. He's had to work really, really hard. And as long as his career has been going, he has uh, not garnered as much support from high officials as Mozart, who just simply comes on a, on a, on, you know, on a big stage, and all of a sudden, everybody's swooning over him. And so Soleri kind of says this statement. He says, God was singing through this man. It's kind of interesting. Um, it, and, and I love how the way it was actually written, because... Basically, when, when we are overcome by jealousy, the person or the people that we're jealous of, we can't even say their name. We can't even bring ourselves to say their name. So we have to say things like, well, that person or those people or that woman or that guy because it's an attempt to dehumanize somebody uh, because we're also dealing with bitterness that is creeping up, and it brings about this sense of destruction. So, so Larry goes on to say, he says, uh, God was singing through this little man, to all the world, making my defeat more bitter with every passing bar. He's the picture of a man who's literally being bitten to pieces by the bitter jealousy that he has. It's destroying him. And it's what I want you to see, that this destruction comes about by satanic influence. Are you aware of that? Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe some of the jealousy that you're struggling with or that you have or that's gnawing at you is actually demonic? Second thing we'll take a look at is idleness, gossip, and a word that we don't use very often today, busybody. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 begins, and a little bit of background. Paul is actually writing to Timothy, and in the address to Timothy, he's basically talking about uh, what to do with women in the church that have uh, either been abandoned by their husband or the husband died or they've been divorced by their husband. So in that culture, obviously, the women were very vulnerable. And so Paul is uh, basically creating alternative paths so that these women who are now vulnerable within a culture that's very male-dominated to be taken care of. And so one of the things he suggests is, you know, make sure that the church comes alongside and helps them and make sure that there's a system put in place to take care of them or maybe encourage them to end up getting married again. Um, Paul basically says, if they don't, um, here's some things that can end up happening. And it would seem as if there were some, obviously within the context there, that were kind of falling subject to this. 
And again, I'll just say this before I read it. This is not just something you know, attributed to you know, women that have been abandoned uh, by their husbands or are divorced. Uh, this can happen to anybody, dudes included. Um, so here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, some learn to be idlers, gossips, and busybodies, saying what they should not, for some have already strayed after Satan. So there's that phrase, after Satan. He links and associates that concept of Satan or this personified uh, picture, depiction of evil with those types of characteristics of being idle, meaning you've got a lot of time on your hands and you don't use it wisely. He describes gossip as someone that is constantly talking about uh, and exploiting other people's flaws and failures and vulnerabilities rather than covering and helping, uh, and then ultimately describes the word busybodies. The word busybody is kind of an interesting word. The only other place that that word actually appears in the New Testament is the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 19, where in that story, it says that uh, there's a bunch of people that were coming, and they're bringing their books, and it says that in the context of that, uh, these are a bunch of people that actually practice the dark arts or the black arts. And the word black arts uh, isn't like some ninja action. It's actually the exact same word that's used here for busybodies. So you kind of think, well, what's the connection between a person who's going around being a busybody and, and, and black magic? Like, what's the connection? Well, what black magic is, or in the context of that story, is the overwhelming desire to want to know things that are hidden. That's what magic is. That's what the word magic is, is, is taking that which is hidden. That's what the word occult means. Things that are hidden now being brought, made to light by way of a medium. Um, or someone who's got magic or magical powers. And so really the connection is a busybody is someone that is going around gathering as much information about that which is hidden about people's lives, and they're spreading gossip. They're going around telling things about other people that maybe they shouldn't be, rather than covering and rather than bringing protection for people that maybe need to be protected. Uh, this person is going around constantly gathering support. He's got a big army of fans and people, a big fan base around him or her, her in this case, uh, uh, or him. And what's ended up happening is it's actually bringing about destruction. What Paul says is that this is actually tantamount to straying after Satan. It's demonic. It's actually influenced by forces that bring brokenness in this world as opposed to peace. And again, I just want you guys to be aware of these things because the Bible points these things out. And again, like I said, we've been trying to dig deeper into trying to understand some of the various methods or tactics by which the devil uses to bring about brokenness and destruction. There's a great quote by a guy named Thomas Brooks. I mentioned this book to you guys last week. Uh, The author of this book, uh, he is a Puritan uh, preacher, a really well-known Puritan preacher. He wrote, uh, an idle life and a holy heart is a contradiction. I love that. An idle life and a holy heart is a contradiction. So in other words, uh, in his way of describing this is that somebody that just simply squanders their time or squanders their time by uh, making fun of other people or, you know, causing and shining lights upon other people's shame uh, is the very opposite of a holy heart. It's a contradiction. And again, I mentioned this last week, but if you weren't here last week, uh, this is a really great book to uh, get, to read. If you're, you know, more interested in the subject that we've been talking about, uh, he spends a lot more time on the subject than I did and Originally, I believe that these were actually a series of sermons that he preached, so if you're kind of getting annoyed by how long I've been spending on this subject, um, you really won't like this guy's book. But um, if you are in any way, shape, or form intrigued by the things that we've been talking about, um, there's a lot of really great gems of wisdom that can be found in Thomas Brooks' great book. In fact, I think I mentioned to you guys this last week, you can go on Kindle, you can buy this on Kindle for like 99 cents. It's super cheap, or you can pick up an actual hard copy, I think maybe even at the parable. So anyways, the last one I want to take a look at is drunkenness. 
And again, this is another one of those areas in which Paul points out as being somehow associated with demonic activity. So think about it this way. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, 11, and 18, he describes this way in this kind of long passage of painting kind of contrasts between walking in light, walking in darkness, uh, walking, being led and guided by the Holy Spirit, or being influenced under the influence of another form of substance. In this case, it's alcohol, uh, drunk, we call it. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Take no part of the unfruitful works of darkness, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for it is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So Paul is making a series of contrasts. On the one hand, he's saying you were once in darkness, but now you're in light. So contrast darkness with light. He contrasts uh, being drunk with wine with being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the opposite would be uh, being filled with the Spirit, and Paul's little contrast right here is actually being under the influence of something else. When you think about it this way, being under the influence of the Holy Spirit uh, is being under the transformative healing power of God. The reason why I think that's exactly what Paul has in mind is Paul's theology, Paul's understanding of the Holy Spirit uh, would not have begun where most of ours would have begun. So if I were to say, what do you guys think about when you think about the Holy Spirit? Most of us would be like, well, I think of Pentecost. That is not where Paul would have begun in understanding the Holy Spirit. Paul would have begun in Genesis chapter 1. That's where Paul would have been originally informed as to who and what the Holy Spirit is. In Paul's mind, the Holy Spirit was the force of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the personal presence of God that was hovering over the face of the deep and bringing life and light and order over a disorderly world over something that was raw. God was making something beautiful. God was making something good. And as Paul would, have think, would, would be thinking about the concept or the subject matter of the Holy Spirit, Paul would be thinking about be filled with the presence of God that brings order in your disorder, that brings life in your, de- in your death, brings light in your darkness, brings love in replacement of your alienation. This is what Paul would have no doubt been thinking about. But the problem is that rather than being filled with the Holy Spirit, especially within our culture and our context, uh, just today as it was you know, 2,000 years ago, there's a temptation to turn to other substances, to be filled with other substances, and rather than being filled with God. And we think of it this way. Someone who's drunk, and you know, uh, doctors will tell you that drug, you know, alcohol is really kind of a, a downer. It's a depressant. And what ends up happening is that under the influence of alcohol, you cannot, in a drunk state, you cannot operate and function in a manner of flourishing. In fact, quite the opposite. It's usually people that are drunk that end up saying really stupid things. It's the ones that are drunk that end up getting their girlfriend pregnant. It's those that are drunk that end up coming home with black and blue eyes because they have no idea what happened the night before because they're in a state of not being able to think rationally or cognitively. So therefore, as a result of that, they are rendered useless being able to be used in that state. So for example, if you are drunk on the job, you can't drive the forklift, you can't go out and be a paramedic and save somebody's life. In fact, you may end up even botch it and end up killing someone. So my point is, drunkenness doesn't lead to flourishing, it leads to brokenness and languishing. But the opposite, Paul would say, it's before with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads to life wholeness. So let me put it this way. What Paul is describing is we have a God that wants to bring life, wants to bring wholeness, 
wants to bring healing, and yet there are forces at work within this world that are always trying to undermine and undo and destroy and subject and master and ruin our lives. Some of them, most of them, as we've just been looking at, are so common, we just think of them as just being norms. For example, alcohol abuse is the number one most common activity on any college campus in America today. You know what the second most common abuse is? Is sexual abuse, right? It doesn't make a, it doesn't make a big stretch to kind of make the connection there because usually when people are drunk, under the influence of a, 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 something like alcohol, oftentimes can lead them to doing things sexually or taking advantage of somebody sexually because their inhibitions are down. They're not able to cognitively think well. In other words, rather than leading to actions of life-giving and kindness and generosity, it ends to acts of violence and rage and selfishness and destruction. In other words, everything that Jesus has come to undo. Does this make sense? So I want to finish with a quick little thought and then finish with the overall thing is that this leads to a big question oftentimes, you know, I'll take a second to answer, is that how do Christians, how should Christians deal with the issue of alcohol? This has led to oftentimes two very common types of reactions or responses. One is to completely uh, avoid it altogether and almost even demonize it. To say, if you're a Christian, you should never, ever, ever, ever drink alcohol. It's evil. It's wicked. It's, you know, the, the devil's juice. Like, stay away from it. And this actually, I would say, for one, is, is nowhere supported in the Scripture. The scripture does not teach that, does not say that. Um, the other opposite extreme is to just simply indulge in it completely, to not in any way, shape, or form think about the type of ramifications or effects that it might have upon other people. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about drunkenness. I'm just talking about indulging in it without thinking about the considerations that it may have or spill over in terms of effect. But what I would suggest is that a better approach would be to recognize the fact that even though alcohol may be a gift from God, it is widely abused, widely misused, and oftentimes that abuse and that misuse can oftentimes lead to all forms of brokenness and, and breakdown within people's lives. So if anything, if you're a Christian, you should at least be aware of the fact that we live in a culture within a society where it's widely abused. So at least have that in your mind when you enjoy a glass of wine. At least have that in mind when you are recognizing the fact that as a Christian community, it's widely abused, and oftentimes something like that can become a doorway to adding and contributing to deep brokenness in people's lives. So if anything, the point that I would make is that in Christ, if you're a Christian, God has promised us life. But we have an enemy, an adversary, that is always seeking to undo every good thing that God wants to do in our lives. And he has all forms of methods and techniques by which to undo God's good work in our lives. Do you know what they are? Have you been able to identify them? Have you seen them? Have you been able to be aware of those things so that when they begin to arise and you begin to over, become overcome by these things, where do you turn for help? And this is one of the great reasons why the gospel shines brightly in the midst of this deep darkness. Because oftentimes the things that we find ourselves tempted to or drawn out from God towards like jealousy, like we talked about, is oftentimes fueled by this desire of we don't have enough unless I push myself forward, unless I lie a little bit, unless I fabricate the truth a little bit. I'm not certain, I'm not confident that somebody's going to take care of me. And this is where the alternative narrative of the gospel comes in and says, that is simply not true. 
You have a God that loves you. You have a God that cares for you. And the question naturally arises, how do I know God cares for me? And the answer that Paul would emphatically voice back, he would say, look at the cross. It's on the cross that we see God most gloriously putting on display his love for us. That what we have is a God come to bring a new kingdom Not a kingdom whereby he crushes his enemies, but a kingdom whereby he is crushed for his enemies. Not a kingdom whereby he causes his enemies to bleed. It's a new kingdom whereby he is willing to be bled for his enemies and then to receive them and welcome them in and transform them. This is the good news that we have a God that has not abandoned us in this dark, cold, destroyed, broken in death-riddled world, but we have a God that has come to do something about that brokenness, to shed light where there was darkness, to give life where there was death, to demonstrate love where there's nothing but alienation and separation. So I want to finish, and I want to invite us to consider this great God, to respond to him. So why don't we all stand in the back of the church, in the little back three areas back there. We have little communion tables, um, We'll partake of the communion. We have some people off to the side by the cross so will be there to pray with you. If there's anything that's going on in your life right now, any type of areas in your life that you kind of feel oppressed or ruined or crushed down or broken by any form of demonic activity that's seeking to undo everything good that God is trying to do within your life. And we believe that God wants to bring healing. This is why we pray. We pray because we believe God's near. That God's not far. He's not out there. God is here. He's near to us, and he wants to bring his healing, his transformation, his wholeness, his love, his forgiveness. So I invite you to come to that table and receive from his hand. I mentioned this last week. We oftentimes live under the narrative that we live by bread alone. But Jesus said emphatically, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where do you find your life sourced in? If it's dependent upon you to keep yourself alive, to survive, at some point you will be crushed underneath the weight of your own exhaustion. But those that hear the good news of God that says, no, you can rest, you can be at, you can pause, you can trust me because I'll be a father to you and I'll carry you and I'll feed you and I'll love you and I'll cleanse you, I'll cover you are people that find their lives able to be at rest. So let's go to God. Let's sing. Let's partake of communion. Let's respond in worship. Sound good?